This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. I want to talk about what I call the papancha of planning. Papancha is a poly term. I love the sound of it. It just rolls off the tongue the way thoughts roll through the mind. Papancha. And papancha means proliferation, conceptual proliferation, discursive thinking. It's the proliferation of thoughts that move from one association to another association to another association. Often it can develop, though, into anxiety because one thought leads to another, leads to another, and it builds into a kind of worry. Planning is one very common form of restlessness, and it can be a very persistent hindrance to concentration. We can experience restlessness in the body, physical restlessness, agitation, don't want to sit still, want to shift, want to move, want to stand, want to shift, want to get, get out of here kind of restlessness. Some of you are laughing like you've thought about getting out of here. (laughs) But most of the restlessness is the agitation that happens in the mind, where the thinking just doesn't want to stop. It just keeps circling around. This is one of the classic five hindrances, desire, aversion, sloth, and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. But we have to be a little patient with our restlessness simply because it's going to be around for a while. It's one of the last fetters to fall away, long after desire and aversion have both been abandoned and uprooted. There's still a subtle restlessness. So we have lots of opportunities to work with restlessness in its course and obvious forms, and its really agitated forms, and also the restlessness in very subtle, very, very subtle forms. The planning restlessness is really about a fantasy of a future, imagining a future, planning how it'll be. How do you respond to yourself? How do you react when you realize that you've been caught by a future that will never happen? Sometimes we're surprised that we're lost in thought. Sometimes we're rather impressed with the detail of our fantasies, of our plans. Sometimes we're a bit embarrassed to admit how much the mind has been lost in the future. Sometimes we judge ourselves for planning. Sometimes we indulge in it and we keep planning. We keep rehearsing what we're going to say in that conversation. We keep imagining how we're going to appear in this situation or that situation. And sometimes we think that if I could just plan it right, I'll perfect the plans and therefore everything will be okay. An ancient Tibetan master, Eshe Shawopa, advised his students, do not rule over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. What I like about this quote is it was an ancient Tibetan master, which means they had a lot of proliferating fantasies too. 
Oh, the, the quote isn't all that exciting. It was just that I liked that they were struggling with the restlessness, too. He said, do not rule over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. That's what we do when we sit down and fantasize about what we're going to do, what, how we're going to be, what's going to happen in the future. Endlessly proliferating possibilities. And who's ruling over it? I. That's why they keep being sustained, is because they reinforce this concept of I. Sometimes we think that our restlessness is pronounced, and perhaps it is pronounced and exaggerated by the fast-paced contemporary lifestyle that many of us live. All the things that we have to plan and all the gadgets that we have to figure out how to use to help us plan and organize our future. And how we have to plan to learn how to use all those things so that we can more effectively plan what will never actually happen the way that we planned it. But planning has actually become a profession. There are wedding planners. There are workshop organizers. There are retreat planners. <laughs> there are financial planners. And there are lots of independent contractors, who consultants who help people plan. <laughs> are, are some of you professional planners? <laughs> some of you probably get paid for this. <laughs> But with so many aspects of our life scheduled and planned, we might miss the simplicity of presence, the simplicity of this breath, of simply calm, clear attention. Can we be flexible in the moment as it is and yet still have a direction in our life and in our practice? It's useful to sometimes recognize and investigate the planning experience, to notice this tendency to try to control the outcome through carefully constructing an imagined scenario about it. It takes a lot of mental effort to thoroughly plan events. Are you aware that you're planning when you're planning? That's probably the most important thing is to be aware that we're planning when we're planning, and to be aware that planning is a thought. And to notice if we are stuck in the planning mode, seduced by the content or desiring something that is not actually real now. Are we in any way experiencing a kind of gratification through imagining plans in the future, imagining things happening in the future? Or do we have the flexibility to direct our attention at will to something as simple as a tingle in the big toe or the hardness of the seat or the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath or to observe our moods and our emotions in the present moment? Sometimes the idea of planning seems so practical But as we observe the process of planning, we might be surprised at how often our plans actually are utterly useless. Look and see. I don't encourage you to stop any useful planning, but to discern the difference between actual preparation 
and simple restlessness. A lot of our planning is not preparation for, for action. It's simply anxiety and restlessness and the continuous circling around of who I will be, who I will be, who I will be. It's fuel for self-becoming. If we keep fueling that restlessness, we'll never know an internal rest. We'll never know peace. And we also won't be trusting ourselves to be present with our experience now so that then as the future unfolds, we will be able to respond wisely to how whatever occurs. I think we have to look at the planning. We have to recognize when we're planning and actually assess whether it's useful or not. Does that need to be planned? And to notice when we're planning, if we're planning efficiently. What I mean by that is, how long does it really take to plan something and how many times do you have to plan it? If it's a practical plan, you make a plan relatively efficiently. And then you enact the plan or you set it aside until it's time to move on it, to act on it. But if it's restlessness, you'll find yourself planning it again. Ah, if this happens, then that. Hmm. A few moments later. And if this happens, then that. And hmm. maybe it would be better if I did this so that that would happen. And one after another after another with just tiny slight changes to shift the pattern and basically keep the mind entertained. If you find yourself planning the same thing, ask yourself if it needs to be planned. Are you planning it efficiently? (coughs) And then start to count how many times you've planned that one. One of my Tibetan teachers said if he thinks a thought five times and he's not learning anything new from it, he doesn't think it anymore. (laughs) And I thought that was very generous. (laughs) Five is a lot. I mean, you don't like your friends telling you the same story five times, do you? Yeah, maybe once. Maybe you'll be, be, be patient a second time. Why do we indulge our minds so much? But nevertheless, you could give yourself five times. I usually give myself three. In order to be able to say enough, did that one already? One, two, three, finished. Plan's done. And say no, cut it off. We have to actually cut it off, which shouldn't be done with any aversion. It shouldn't be done with any aggression. It's done with a disciplined mind that has the concentration and the focus to say no and mean it. Do we have the concentration and the discipline to say no to the actions of our own minds and mean it? We often say yes. We often indulge in conditioned patterns. So we can start to look at what are we consenting to in the patterns of our mind? And what do we just say, no, I don't want to keep doing that one anymore. And I really don't. Like, we have to mean it. I do a lot of long personal retreats. I try to undertake one at least every year. And my mind is a big planner. 
I mean, this is like my hindrance. Is, you know, everybody's got their favorites. This is like one of my big favorites. <laughs> so at the beginning of my retreats, I very often remind myself to make no plans. Because I can plan anything. I can plan everything. I mean, it's amazing what I've been able to plan on retreats. <laughs> Until I discovered that I was planning. It took a long time. I think it took years before I really recognized planning and what it was doing and what it was rooted in. Especially all the plans that I made for my own meditation practice. Have you planned the development of your retreat? Have you planned the development of your meditation? Have you planned how your insights are going to unfold? Have you planned when you're going to get enlightened? (laughs) One of the things that motivated me to want to really unravel this planning tendency was the preference to actually have an authentic experience of my own life and not just try to experience what I had already anticipated or planned, but to actually be open to what's a real, genuine, authentic experience of life as it's unfolding, not how I'm planning it. What's the problem with planning? Why does planning seem to cause so much suffering? One of the big problems with planning is that it disguises, it hides the fact of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. In Pali, the terms are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Those aren't complex words, but they're so important to our practice. These three characteristics are fundamental to all of insight meditation practice. They're the basic insights that open the doorway to liberation. And when we plan, we're not seeing these. Planning disguises the truth of anicca. It disguises impermanence because we don't see that things are changing. Through planning, we cling to a particular concept of how things will be in the future. So we're not seeing the dynamic unfolding process of things constantly changing. We might feel that we can control the future if only we could plan it well enough that we could account for all options and then solidify an idea of how things will be. Planning can so easily get out of hand and we can find ourselves just planning projects over and over and over again. Or, what often happens on retreat is we start planning our lives. The whole of our lives. Like the whole rest of our lives. (laughs) You may be living it, but it's completely out of your control. There are so many causes and conditions that are coming to it that things are not going to unfold the way you've planned. Sometimes we have an experience in the meditation practice, and instead of accepting that that's impermanent, we plan how, if it was a pleasant experience, how to get it again. We plan what we're going to do in order to keep it, in order to hold it. And all these planning fantasies do not acknowledge and recognize anicca, impermanence, change. And if we're attached to our plans, we may insist that our experience conform to our expectations. Even when the conditions have already changed, we might still be holding desperately to the way that we have envisioned it, the way that we have planned it. And the situation in the present moment might be completely fine. 
but we'll feel dissatisfied. We'll feel angry because it didn't turn out the way we expected, the way we had planned, the way we had wanted. And we're missing the connection then with what actually is present. Then while we're expecting a future that doesn't come, we're missing the present moment as it is. We're missing our life as we're living it. So simply observing the arising and passing of things and learning to become perhaps comfortable with the fact of change, at ease with the insecurity of things constantly changing. This can help us stop being fixated on our plans. But planning also masks the characteristic of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, especially in the form of pleasant fantasy. This can distract us from the simple fact of discomfort, unpleasant feelings, pain, grief, sadness, fear, annoyance. People do so much to avoid feeling these things. And there tends to be a deeply conditioned unwillingness to open to that first noble truth. There is unsatisfactoriness with all conditioned things. We resist that. Why do we resist it? This unwillingness to open to this first noble truth drives plans so that we have ever more elaborate and creative ways of avoiding unpleasant experiences of the body and mind. We try and seek comfort, physical comfort, comfortable thoughts, pleasant thoughts. And often it's through imagining something in the future that will be pleasant. But it's only through the full understanding of dukkha, the full understanding of the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned things that we'll really be able to let go of our attachment to all the things that are causing suffering. Avoiding it doesn't work. Sometimes the pursuit of plans can become quite obsessive. And so I like the very simple technique of just pausing. Just pausing for a moment. Just interrupt the cycle and recognize that planning is happening. That's what it is. It's planning. And to take a breath. I think we have to consciously notice not only that planning is happening, but that planning is restlessness and that that restlessness is an obstruction to the true experience of what is actually happening. That planning is an obstruction to the development of mindfulness. It's an obstruction to the development of wisdom. It's an obstruction to the development of clarity and concentration. But to know how it obstructs these qualities, we have to investigate it. We have to see how it functions. We have to bring interest to it and ask. Maybe first, is there something here that I'm not feeling? What is the feeling, the Vedana, the pleasantness and unpleasantness in the present moment? Because very often when we go off into a pleasant fantasy, it's because there's an unpleasant feeling in the body that we didn't want to deal with. Maybe we're a little bit hot. Maybe there's a little bit of hardness. Maybe there's a little bit of tightness. And boom, the mind wants something more comfortable, so it goes off. 
it seems hard to believe sometimes, but actually directly feeling the unpleasant feeling brings much greater peace and happiness than any of the best fantasies we can come up with to avoid it. Letting go of the distractions, letting go of the hindrances, and just turning to face the reality of our experience brings a deep peace and a potential for indescribable happiness. All of our obsessive planning is actually keeping us from experiencing the joy that we so yearn for. This obsessive planning that's based upon a fear of recognizing dukkha can lead us through this chronic planning that just keeps taking us further and further away from the potential to see the truth of experience and to abide with it without clinging, with a mind at peace, with a mind that is free. But as much as we try to plan our way away from suffering, it doesn't work. There's no way to plan in such a way that we can avoid the truth of dukkha. No plan is going to avoid pain. No plan is going to avoid aging, illness, or death. At some point, we have to turn our attention to face this first noble truth and the characteristic of dukkha. We have to be willing to know unsatisfactoriness of experience in the present moment, in the context of our own lives, however it may be manifesting. Chronic planning also disguises anatta, not self. Look at your plans and ask yourself how many of them are revolving around your own self-image, how you'll appear to others, how you'll succeed, what you'll say in a conversation. People often try and construct a sense of themselves through fabricating how they will be in the future. We almost imagine ourselves appearing in the future. Maybe it's the new me. Maybe it's the new spiritual me. How we'll float out of the retreat. Make it back to our home like a few inches above the ground. Transformed. Often it's just something as simple as planning. I'll say it like this. I'll appear like that. I'll become like this. Sometimes we try and create ourselves through a story of ourselves. And if we repeat that story often enough, if we plan it in enough detail, then maybe it will become true. But it's a fiction. And though it seems to provide a sense of being someone, though it seems to provide a sense of confidence, It's something we've created in our own minds. Are we going to be present for a fiction? Does that even make sense? In the end, we're left simply with the tale of ourselves, with the story of ourselves, with an image of a self, rather than the vivid, confident clarity that comes when we're awake in the present moment, and awake in each moment as life unfolds. If we're caught by the story, 
then we experience life like a character in a drama, disconnected from the vitality of life. And so I think it's very important that we recognize this tendency towards planning when it becomes obsessive. And we can be mindful of it. In fact, we have to be mindful of it. We have to be aware of it before we can really do anything skillful with it. Restlessness is not going to be abandoned until full awakening. So the process of working with it has to be gentle. There has to be some friendliness with it, maybe even a bit of humor about it. I actually find retreats to be the most wonderful time to work with planning because there's nothing you have to plan here. (laughs) I mean, nothing at all. A bell rings. You come and sit down. You're sitting and a bell rings. You go and walk. You're walking and a bell rings. You come and sit down. After a while, another bell rings. Stomach says, hunger, hunger, hunger. You think, okay, I'll walk to the dining room. You eat. You don't have to plan what you're going to eat. You don't have to choose anything from the menu. Oh, there is no menu, is there? You eat. You don't have to plan anything here. I mean, maybe the biggest plan will be what time you're going to take your shower. Did anybody plan when you were going to take your shower? How many times did you plan that today? (laughs) Oh, I'll take it at this time, or maybe I'll take it a little bit later, maybe I'll take it another later. If you've planned taking a shower more than three times today, then you've got a mind like mine. It's susceptible to planning. So this can be a good hindrance to work with. (laughs) Because really, there's just nothing we need to plan here. We can just be present for the unfolding of things and kind of move along with the day and watch what unfolds, trust the unfolding of the practice without having to predict it with our plans. But there are some basic steps that we can undertake as we work with this planning mind. The first is to recognize it. The second is to name it. Planning, restlessness, really recognize it as the process that it is. Not the story that it's telling, because they're all very seductive and important. But just restlessness, planning. And then don't judge yourself for thinking like this. It's a deeply conditioned pattern. But resolve to return to present awareness and then actually connect with the present sensation. Really, if there's a lot of planning, use the body. Even open the eyes so that you know where you are and you're not lost in the world of future imaginings. Just really feel the body. Be in the present moment. Sometimes we'll have to look underneath the plans and see if there are certain emotions, if there are mental states that are associated with the chronic planning and keep fueling those repeated thoughts. Sometimes there's fear. Sometimes there's uncertainty and doubt and insecurity. And we really don't know what we want. We really don't know how to be. We really don't trust our own responses. And so we keep trying to grasp a hold of something to give us a sense of insecurity and to moderate that fear, that worry. And so we keep reaching for plans. 
And so we sometimes have to look and face that mental state that's underneath those thoughts and feel the quality, the contractedness, the fixedness, and also feel how much effort it takes to keep planning everything in our lives. There's no end to the possibilities of planning. There's no rest for the restless mind. Restless. This is dukkha, a mind without rest. It's dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. We can plan almost anything. We can plan, make grand plans for the, our entire lives. And we can also plan something as impossible to predict as what somebody will say to us. Mm-hmm. Have you planned any conversation? <laughs> I can guarantee it will not work out that way. I've tried. I've planned numerous conversations in the history of my meditation practice. Not a single one. I can't even manage to start out the conversation with the words that I had planned, let alone plan what somebody else was going to say so that I could come back with what I planned. It never works. It never works. I think it's very interesting to see how we can sometimes sit in meditation and not want to connect with the experience but still be interested enough in meditation that we think about the meditation. And so then we plan, well, maybe I'll have an insight about this and maybe I'll have an insight about that and, oh, she talked about that in that instruction. Maybe I'll have an insight about that. We don't quite apply it. We don't quite investigate it. We don't quite feel it or connect with it. But nevertheless, we think about it. And we make some plans about having that insight. People sometimes have these plans and they decide when they come on the retreat that this is going to be their, the retreat where they have their insight into impermanence. <laughs> or where they're going to have the insight, they're going to really work on this not-self idea. They've heard about it in talks. This is going to be the retreat where they understand what the heck is meant by not-self. Or this is going to be the retreat where they process their grief. Or this is going to be the retreat where they deal with their worry. Or this is the retreat where we're going to break through to emptiness. <laughs> the problem is the Dhamma does not unfold according to our plans. It never has. It doesn't unfold according to our timelines or our desires. So we just have to work with what we got. One time I was on a three-month retreat. And I was practicing very diligently. I really was between plans. And I was totally silent, had no contact whatsoever with the outside world. And then I suddenly got a note. Somebody had sent me a package. But the office wasn't open, so I couldn't go get the package. So it was 24 hours from when I got the note to when I could get the package. (laughs) So my mind would think, oh, I wonder if so-and-so sent it to me. Oh, I bet bet she sent me a care package. (laughs) And I imagined what would be in it. 
and I composed the thank you note. And I felt such gratitude and appreciation. And then ten minutes later, I thought, well, maybe she didn't send that. Maybe he sent me this. Yeah, it was probably, he, he knows I like this, and he's gonna, he, he probably sent me that. Then I composed the thank you note to him. <laughs> felt such gratitude and felt loved and cared for. And then I thought, oh no. What if it's that? What if they sent me this thing that I have to work on for my taxes and for this and that? Oh my God, I've got to deal with all that. How will I deal with that with my yogi mind? I don't even have my files here. What am I going to do? Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. Multiple hindrance attack. Fear, terror. Then I thought, well, you know, it could be from my sister because, you know, if the weather's changing, and I did mention that if the weather if the weather gets cold, maybe she could send me this, you know, some of my, you know, warm clothes and stuff. But maybe she, maybe, and then I felt such gratitude again. <laughs> and it kept going back and forth. I thought about all these possible things that could be in the package, and each one the mind just went through this thing until it finally dawned on me that I don't know what's in the package. (laughs) And there's no point in my planning a response to it and having all kinds of emotions built upon it when I have no idea what it is. And that's often what we do in, in our plans is there's some tiny little stimulus and then we have this imagination that we prepare ourselves for, whether it's the pleasant or the unpleasant, that is all entirely fantasy. This can sometimes happen in relationships, especially in the silence. Maybe you come on retreat and you're not in a relationship and you kind of want to be in a relationship. <laughs> and you see something, somebody who kind of looks kind of nice, you know, kind of attractive. And of course you're not talking. You're not talking. <laughs> right? You're not talking. Let's <laughs> just make this clear. Of course we're not talking. We're not touching either. So, we have the mind. We have the mind. So we see somebody who looks kind of attractive. And then we start to imagine having a conversation at the end of the retreat and suggesting that we go someplace and hang out and exchange phone numbers or have coffee or whatever we imagine. And then we start to imagine how well that first date went. And then we start to imagine the second and the third and... We imagine all the interests that we have in common. And maybe a few difficult things that we think we can tolerate about. <laughs> and we imagine the whole process of courtship and our plans to move into together. <laughs> what we'll do with each other's stuff to make it fit in one apartment. Which stuff we're willing to get rid of of our own and which we're not. We have to decorate the apartment, of course. <laughs> so we imagine their tastes and how it mixes with ours and what we're going to like insist upon. And then you kind of have to agree upon which dishwasher soap you're going to use. How flexible are you going to be about your brands? 
But then the person coughs. <laughs> and it really interrupted your meditation practice. So you start thinking about your arguments. You plan your, your separation and how you're going to divide all the possessions that you had just imagined purchasing together. Who's going to get the sofa? Who's going to get the dog? Who's going to get custody of the children if it really got into a big, serious plan? Basically, pleasant contacts sometimes lead, when we're not mindful of them, lead to pleasant scenarios in the mind. And unpleasant contacts can lead to unpleasant, painful scenarios in the mind. So we imagine the breakup. But all fantasy and all planning, when it's obsessive planning like this, all restlessness rests upon and depends upon a lack of mindfulness. This is the root of it. When things are pleasant and we're not mindful, we plan how to get more. When things are unpleasant and we're not mindful, we plan how to get rid of it, how to get less of it. And this can also happen as our meditation practice deepens. Maybe we get a little bit of meditative bliss. You know, it happens sometimes. Peace, joy, rapture. We might feel elated. And because we got kind of excited our mindfulness weekend, just enough that we start fantasizing how to do that again in the next sitting. Or how we're now going to join a monastery and experience this bliss all the time. Or we make our plans for our next retreat and our next retreat and our next retreat. And it wasn't that that genuine peace and bliss didn't happen. It did happen. But because the mindfulness weakened, building upon that pleasant experience, we now got restless and started to plan more of it. It's not uncommon for people to decide they're going to go off to some you know, cave in the Himalayas <laughs> right after they just had a sweet sitting. We have to recognize a hindrance as a hindrance, even if it's tagged on to a very peaceful, calm, sitting meditation. The reverse can happen too. Maybe you have a really frustrating sitting. Maybe you're very sluggish. Maybe you're very sleepy. Maybe you're in pain. What does the mind fantasize about? Packing up and going home. (laughs) I think every meditator at one point or another at least fantasizes about packing up and going home. Hopefully, we recognize then imagining, it's a planning, and we look to see what's happening. Guaranteed, something's unpleasant. Believe me, it's easier to be with the unpleasant than to pack up and go home. Because you're going to have unpleasant things there, too. The interesting thing about planning is that once we've finished planning our own lives, we can start planning other people's lives. (laughs) But the odd thing is, is that they usually don't appreciate our efforts. (laughs) Working with the obsessive planning mind is going to take some resolve because we have to be willing to recognize it in all its dimensions and forms, have a little bit of humor around it, and be willing to just begin again and reconnect with what's actually happening in the present moment. We have to trust mindfulness of the present moment. 
it can sometimes be helpful to look at the planning and to try to discern is the basic force behind it greedy? Like, are we wanting more pleasant? Is the basic force anger? Are we trying to avoid something? Or is it just this delusion of self-construction occurring again and again? If the desires are around pleasant things, like fantasizing about shopping or what you're going to cook or what you're going to get, then or uh, sexual fantasies or romantic fantasies, ah, these are probably all in the desire category. If it's plans for revenge, how you're going to get even. If you're rehearsing a snide remark that you just hope that you have the opportunity to make, you know, then probably it's in the hatred category. <laughs> and if your thoughts are about how you'll present yourself, the self-image, this delusion category, they might be thoughts about how we'll be seen, what we'll say, what we'll wear, how we'll appear, how will other people think of us, where will we belong, will we fit in, all of these kinds of thoughts. But I label all of it as planning dukkha, just planning dukkha. Because for me, what's most important is that instead of the delusion that planning is going to be a support for my happiness, because it isn't. I recognize it as restlessness, as dukkha, as suffering, as unsatisfactoriness. I want to notice and I want to highlight the dukkha aspect of planning and feel the contraction that happens in that fantasy that disconnects me from the vividness of the pleasant moment. In planning, it's like I'm fueling a craving to not be present. It's countering, it's moving against the, the primary aims of my practice. So I try to feel, I try to recognize, I try to face the dissatisfaction that's embedded in planning and see it as dukkha, see the danger and restlessness, be willing to and work with the first noble and second noble truth. And in fact, remind myself, ah, this is suffering and this is the, the causes of suffering. This is the path. This is what I'm working with. So I don't want to just let go of the plans immediately. Yes, okay, yes, I let go of the plans immediately. But I want to also see the undercurrent of what was fueling those plans. But there are some things that do need to be planned. Many skills are developed through protocols, through training. We have to plan these things. Paramedics, nurses, astronauts, emergency response workers, they have very clear protocols where somebody has thought through every possible worst-case scenario and planned skillful responses for them. And people are trained to again and again enact those skillful responses to imagined events. And this is helpful. This is training in those situations. This retreat wouldn't happen if it didn't start being planned. It's been on my calendar for more than two years. So it's been planned for a long time. Now all the details didn't plan a couple of years ago, but in stages over the course of two years, it was sort of put together. We often need to plan things in communication because if we don't make plans together within our families or within our relationships, then one party will just always have to be responding to the whims of the other. Sometimes it's useful to sit down and to make plans, to make decisions together. 
Theater productions have a lot of planning. You know, if you've gone to an opera, if you've gone to um, any kind of musical presentation, any kind of theatrical event, the blocking, the lighting, the the lines, it's all planned. And yet there's an immediacy to it, a sense of real presence. And so we can see that planning doesn't need to stop but we have to find the aspect of the planning that's the restlessness, and that's where the dukkha is. I live in the Bay Area, just south of San Francisco, and we have three bridges that go across the bay. One of them is called the Bay Bridge, obviously. It's a bridge. I don't know how long it is, but it's a bridge. You know, it's not that long. And some years ago, I read an article in in a magazine that said that each year, 3,000 cars run out of gas on the Bay Bridge. (laughs) That's an awful lot of people who didn't plan (laughs) to have enough gas in their car to get across a bridge. So we do need to plan the necessary things in our lives. But we still have to remind ourselves that most of life is beyond our control, beyond what we can conceive of, and beyond what we could create through plans. Sometimes when our plans are foiled again and again, we can drop into an experience of faith, of humility, of presence. I think it's great when our plans are thwarted, because then we're reminded of anicca, of dukkha, and of anatta. Between our plans, between our projections, beyond our thoughts, we might discover something that's more wondrous, more amazing than anything we could have imagined or planned for. I'd like to end with a verse from the Middle Eight Discourses. Let me not revive the past, nor on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that, and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night. It is she, the peaceful sage, has said, who has had a single excellent night. So let us not revive the past nor on the future build our hope.